This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. This is a Radio Labour World Report recorded on Friday, May 7th, 2021. I'm Mark Polarjo. In the report this week, International Labour's Plan for Confronting Climate Change, Privatizing Profitable Public Systems in Brazil, The Labor Start report about union events and singing. Union Grandpa, Union Grandpa, so tell me what did you do and what you do. This is Radio Labor. The international labor movement is campaigning to protect workers during the climate crisis and move to more sustainable economies. Seamarie Ainsborough reports. The key elements in addressing the climate crisis, according to the labor movement, include a pathway to net zero carbon emissions, sustainability, jobs, and a just transition. And it can all be done. That was the message given by the leader of the International Trade Union Confederation at a recent webinar. The ITUC is the global body which represents national labor centers, such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress and the Canadian Labor Congress. Sharon Burrow is the ITUC's General Secretary. First of all, I would say we need not to backtrack. We can't be distracted. So governments, companies, ourselves, we all need to accept that the future to get to net zero and to sustain a living planet is indeed renewables because we see far too much contestation, far too much uh, wavering about whether we can get the job done with renewables. We can. We know we can but it does need us to embrace change. Now, from a worker's point of view, if you want to build trust, it's got to be jobs, jobs and jobs. They've got to be climate-friendly jobs and they have to have, of course, just transition. It's a very simple recipe. If you're, in fact, changing the energy system or the technology in heavy industry or the way you construct services, then you have to actually look at what the jobs map is and you have to build the trust. So if you have to actually displace people and they're at retirement age, it's secure pensions. If they're slightly younger and they offer retirement, it's a bridge to pensions. If they're actually younger workers, you have to have redeployment policies, you have to have income support or social protection during that time that is at a living wage level, and you have to have, of course, skills, skills, reskilling, lifelong learning. But we need the plan. So that's why we advocate that unless you have workers and employers and government at the table, you won't get the plan. And I just want to say one other thing. It is all about industry policy and political will. For the last few decades, industry policy has kind of been this dirty word. Well, I come from a tradition that says if we didn't have manufacturing, you didn't have the innovation or the spin-off into other sectors. We're right there now with energy. We're right there with heavy industry technology, with the transition into EVs, with mass transit, with construction and energy efficiency. And there are jobs in all of this. But I just want to give you one figure. If you think that we've spent about $14 trillion, $3.6 trillion invested in utility-scale renewable energy or a distributed renewable energy and energy efficiency as a whole, could create almost 70 million jobs to 2030. Now, when we have a jobs deficit of about 570 million jobs, then that's worth having. 
and you build from that because every dollar you put in it, then we know there are every job, uh, 10 jobs you create in renewable energy, there's a 5 to 10 job dividend in other sectors. And I might add, I know we're talking about energy, but for resilience, as well as quality jobs, and that means rights and social protection and decent wages, but we also need to understand that resilience is also our care sector. If COVID-19 has shown us anything, we cannot manage a world without healthcare, education, aged care, childcare, and ironically, this creates twice as many jobs as many of the construction areas or energy efficiency or building renewable grids or whatever it is, and all of them create more jobs than fossil fuels. So it's about where are the jobs, how do you build the trust, and finally, how do you actually deploy the technology and the finance? Because if we don't share technology, and we can create technology pools if people are going to argue about patents and investment in innovation, but if we don't share it with developing countries, we will not make the net zero race. You can find more information about the ITUC's plans for addressing the climate crisis at ituc-csi.org. This is Seamarie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labor. In Brazil, union activists are fighting a plan by the right-wing Bolsonaro government to privatize a huge water supply system in the state of Rio de Janeiro. One of their demands is that the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board withdraw its investment of $270 million from the private company. Just recently, the privatization of the water system was approved by the country's courts. To find out more about the situation, I talked to U.N. Gibb. Mr. Gibb is a regional assistant for the Inter-Americas region of the Global Union Public Services International. The PSI represents national public service unions at the world level. Mr. Gibb mentions the former president of Brazil, Luiz Inácio da Silva, known as Lula. I asked Mr. Gibb about the company that is privatizing the water supply in Rio de Janeiro. So it's a Brazilian company. It's called Igua. It's a national company. They've got about 18 operations in five different states across Brazil. And all of them are contracts to provide public services, con- private contracts to provide water or sanitation services to Brazilians. It's particularly concerning for us because the this particular option is for all of the water and sanitation services for the state of Rio de Janeiro. Rio is, uh, like Sao Paulo, both a state and, uh, and a city. And it's a massive contract. And it's worth, it's this, uh, these water services in the state of Rio, they're really profitable. And the state uses this to, to build the infrastructure and to provide quality services and to subsidize networks that are not water networks and sanitation services that are not profitable. And we understand always, in every case, and public services international experience, in every case around the world, what do these companies do? They take advantage of existing infrastructure, they run it down, often into the ground, and then they jump out after they've taken profit out of the system. And so people will end up paying more. The water bills go up. They end up paying more for worse services. Our public infrastructure gets run down, and they run off with the loot. This is particularly worrying for us. From a perspective of water being necessary for life, as a basic principle, we're worried about it from profit taking out of the public system. This is a hard version of neoliberalism that we're experiencing here in Brazil. There's no thought, there's no, there's no 
planning in terms of how these privatizations are being done from the national and at some in some cases in this one at the, at the state level. But in Bolsonaro of Brazil, I mean, they just want to sell off everything as quickly as possible before they get kicked out of office, which is inevitably going to happen in our national elections next year. If the Workers' Party comes back in power, Lula has been uh, has had all of his political rights returned. The whole legislative coup that took place against the Dilma government, the, the, the defamation that happened uh, by that judge, so-called judge, Sergio Moro, whose whole record has been brought into question uh, in this process. He's going to be processed eventually, uh, legally. But Lula has all of his political rights returned. The, the whole judicial process that authorized, fed into the coup, facilitated the coup, has been thrown out. Uh, it's been delegitimized by, the own, by our own Supreme Court here in Brazil after years, uh, both against Lula and against Dilma, actually. And so if the Workers' Party, with Lula uh, as the candidate, comes back into power, many of these kinds of privatizations that have been done without any kind of strategy, without any kind of thought, they're going to be brought back into the public sector. This is inevitable. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 36 languages. Here's a small sample of all that hard work. Our top story section included links to coverage of the global union campaign to embarrass the government of Colombia and convince it to stop using violence against trade unionists and their allies as they protest a tax reform plan that would deepen social inequality in that country. We also carried stories about the repression of May Day celebrations around the world. One story that has had a long, perhaps far too long, life on our news pages is the increasing level of violence that journalists are being subjected to. This week, the world celebrated Press Freedom Day, but that freedom is worth little when reporters cannot do their jobs without fear of assault, assassination, or imprisonment. In just the last month alone, we have carried reports of threats, assaults, and assassinations of journos from Mexico, Indonesia, the United States, Brazil, Afghanistan, France, Mali, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Syria, El Salvador, Algeria, Colombia, Burkina Faso, Yemen, Greece, Morocco, and Russia. In many cases, the injured or murdered journalists were denied protection by the state, or it's suspected that state agents were responsible for the attacks. And, of course, media workers are subject to direct state repression and so suffer imprisonment when their work focuses on government corruption and other so-called sensitive topics. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found news of the campaign that is working to build solidarity with garment workers in Lesotho. The workers, all women, work in a factory that makes clothing for global brands and are routinely subjected to sexual and physical abuse. We also carried stories about the good news from Haiti, where garment workers have negotiated the recovery of health care payments that were deducted from their pay but never forwarded to the government agency responsible for providing health services to the workers. And we covered the results of a union survey of women working in the Federal Public Service of Australia. It confirmed that the vast majority of gender-based workplace harassment goes unreported.
Our health and safety newswire carried stories from South Africa where firefighters are pleading for protection from being physically attacked whilst on the scene of a fire. From the UK where strikes over COVID safety issues are continuing and why Air India pilots are refusing to fly unless they have been vaccinated. Our photo of the week is of one of the hundreds of arrests that occurred this year, as every year, when Turkish unions attempted to mark May Day in Istanbul. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include an urgent appeal for online solidarity with Algerian union leader Morad Gedia, who has been imprisoned for his work organizing strikes by his co-workers. This, despite Algeria having signed the ILO conventions recognizing the right to strike as a fundamental labor right. Look for details of this and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Australia's Victorian Labor Choir with You Knew, Grandpa, You Knew. international labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.